Be seated and turn in your New Testaments to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. John 7, 37 through 39. As we continue in our series, the Jesus we need, the actual Jesus of Nazareth as he has given to us, shown to us in the Gospel of John. These are the very words of God. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is about when a drink of water becomes a river. When a drink of water becomes a mighty river, and it starts with the invitation to drink. When we lived in Colorado Springs, Colorado, for those of you who are visiting, that's where my family lived before we moved here 13 years ago. Uh, you know, everything's green around here. There's lots of rain around here. It's not hard to grow things around here. Not so in the Rocky Mountain West. And we were there seven and a half years. And uh, during our seven and a half years, five of those years were the greatest, worst, I guess you'd say, drought in recorded history for Colorado. I mean, it was so bone dry and the net effect of it was that dust was just really fine dust was just blowing in the air and it just wasn't any rain to kind of tamp it down, you know, uh, like it, like it's supposed to the way it happens down here. And, um, I had never experienced water laws. I mean, there were water restrictions, and you were not to disobey. You could only, you know, water your grass. I can't remember if it was one or two times per week, but it was very slight. You didn't want them to catch you because there were people riding around and people reporting people. You didn't want them to catch you washing your car because water was so scarce. And up until that time, and and I mean, I just felt thirsty all the time, y'all. You know, just kind of swallowing down that dust. But uh, up until that time, I guess I'd taken water for granted. Water's important. Now, parenthetically, I flew down to Phoenix uh, during that period of time to uh, to go to a church planting movement kind of meeting, and, and we flew into Phoenix, and I knew it was going to be dry down there. Y'all know about this, right? Because that's in a literal desert with the cacti and everything, so I knew it was going to be dry, and I got off the plane, and just the heat just attacked me, you know. Uh, at least in Colorado Springs at 7,000 feet, it may have been dry, but it was cool. Not so in Phoenix, Arizona. So I got in the cab. The air conditioning in the cab was working. We were heading from the airport to the hotel, and I noticed something kind of interesting, kind of shocking. All the yards were so green and like lots of sprinklers were going, you know, as we were heading through some residential areas. I even saw water flowing down the, the curb, you know, the gutter. So I'm like, water is like excess water. And I, I said to the, the, the taxi driver, I said, y'all, 
y'all aren't under water restrictions here, are you? Oh, no, he said. There's plenty of water here. And I said, where do you get it? He said, Colorado. (laughs) He said, Senator Barry Goldwater bought all the water rights to the Colorado River years ago. We have plenty. I was incredulous. Water is a big deal in the West. And you know what? It is personally important here, but particularly there, to drink enough water. I mean, if you're out hiking, I mean, we wouldn't even go around the the neighborhood without a bottle of water on our hip because it's just so easy to to get dehydrated. Now, I want to ask you as we move into this text, have you ever been thirsty? And I don't mean you're a little bit thirsty. Have you ever been achingly thirsty? Have you ever been threateningly thirsty? Have you ever been dehydrated? I think most of us maybe have been dehydrated. That's a bad feeling. Do you know people can live a long time without food? I mean, they can live weeks. The hunger strikes, you know, we see and some of the the resistance, uh, political resistance in certain places. But do you know the average, the human, the average human being can only exist three to five days without water? And there are some people who are very aged that can exist only a matter of hours, like lots of hours, without water. And so I want you to think about this thirst. I want you to think about this danger as we kind of go back into the Old Testament, into the book of Exodus. Because God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He had brought them out through ten plagues. Pharaoh said no ten times just so God would show his power and glory and supremacy and might over the nations. God brought them out of Egypt with with mighty power. God opened the Red Sea when they were pinned up against that body of water about to be destroyed by the Egyptian army and they passed through the Red Sea on dry land. And as they get through the Red Sea, they they suddenly find themselves wandering in a a wilderness. Some, Some translations call it a wilderness. Other translations call it a desert. But this is where they're going to spend the next 40 years. They're going to be wandering in wilderness, in dry, arid, hot, dusty wilderness. And and it's a massive group. A massive group. You know, hundreds of thousands of people. And suddenly in this wilderness, they are without water. I want you to think about all these people because they didn't leave anybody who was able-bodied behind in Egypt. We're talking about all the way from the senior citizens down to the babies. And there's no water and there is the pain of thirst. I mean, can you just hear the moaning and groaning among these people as they don't have anything to drink and it's already been two days? Can you hear the crying of the children and the, and the whining of the babies, can you see them just kind of bent down, bowed down with utter dehydrated exhaustion? And they start to panic. 
And they start to say all kinds of things. And they start flinging accusations about how they got to this place of near death and thirst. And in Exodus 17, we find them camped in a place called Rephidim. And there's no water anywhere. And and I just read to you from Exodus 17, verse 1 through 4. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. And they said, give us some water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to begin with just to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to God, what shall I do with these people, he said to God. They are almost ready to stone me, to kill me. Then God told Moses to take the staff, the very one that he had touched the Nile River, the very one that he held up as God opened the Red Sea. Take the staff and strike a certain rock. And suddenly as Moses struck that rock, there was an explosion of water out of the dry rock. And it was cool and it was clean. It was the best drinking water you've ever even thought of in your life. And if you're thinking it was really good right now, imagine what people thirsting to death thought about it. And it was, and it was just continual. And the people were saved from this, this death by thirst. And they were fully satisfied by this water. Can you imagine how good that water tasted? How satisfying that water was? And so fast forward to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 is about when Jesus went up to Jerusalem to what was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we read early in the text that uh, Jesus' brother said, hey, if this ministry is going to go big and go public, we've got to go to the big city. You've got to go to Jerusalem, and that's where you'll gain a lot more followers because most of his followers had just left him in John chapter 6. And Jesus says, no, y'all, y'all go on up. I'm going to sit this one out. And they, they go up to Jerusalem. And, and then he secretly goes to Jerusalem. And everybody was disappointed because they'd all heard about him. And they all knew it was tense between he and the religious authorities. They all wondered whether there was going to be an arrest, whether there was going to be a killing. They all wondered whether he would show up. They all wondered what he would say, how he would confront people, what he might say to them, what their souls might do. Hearing his words spoken with authority, we read in Mark's Gospel, and not as the scribes and Pharisees. With authority. And so Jesus comes into the temple. There he is. And he goes to the most public place in the temple. The the very place that you could draw more people than any other space. And there he is at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now I need to remind you what the Feast of Tabernacles is. The Feast of Tabernacles, you know, as the feast season goes in Israel, that's the last feast. That's the last one. It's in the fall. It is celebrating the olive harvest, big 
importance to, to that group of people and the grape harvest. But more important than that, the, the Feast of Tabernacles is a commemoration, a remembering and a worship to God concerning the, the years from being brought out of Egypt until they entered the promised land, the years of wandering in the desert. That's what the Feast of where they had to live in tents and they had to just keep moving. And how God took care of his people as he led them from Egypt to the promised land and they lived in tents. So the average Israeli family would have its tent. I was describing this last week. It's kind of like being in the grove for 40 years, you know. And you go to your spot in Jerusalem and the people that have their tent next to you and you pitch a tent, your tabernacle, your booth. Some of the translations call them booths. And you'd live in these tents for a week, and, and every day there would be something special on the agenda in the worship of God's people in the temple, that great temple in Jerusalem. Do you know one of the most important um, ceremonies that they did in the temple had to do with God's providing water for his people in the wilderness? And um, what would happen is every day the priests would process. There would be like, you know, like a like in a wedding how people process. You'll see the minister come down and there's like a procession and then everybody else and finally the bride. The priests would process from the temple all the way across Jerusalem to what's known as the Pool of Siloam. And there's some things going on in the Bible with the Pool of Siloam. And the priest would take this golden laver or this golden um, pitcher, okay? And they would go and multitudes of people would follow the procession. And there would be this whole great column of people go coming down through the streets of Jerusalem to the Pool of Siloam. Once they got to the Pool of Siloam, the priest very ceremonially would dip the golden pitcher into the Pool of Siloam. He would raise the pitcher and they would turn and they would process back to the temple. And what's fascinating about this is, uh, is when they got to the place in the temple called the water gate. That's two words, not water gate. It's water gate. On the south side of the temple, the Levite, those that served God in the temple, would already be on the walls of the city at the water gate and would blow as hard as he could uh, the loud blast on the shofar. You all know what a shofar is? That's that ram's horn, da-da-da-da, you know, um, kind of, of thing that they would blow at that time. And so they come into the temple, and once they got into the temple and they were heading toward the, the altar is where they're going to end up, there would be the temple choir that met them in the temple. And they would sing from Psalms 113 to 118. And when they finally processed and got to the, the brazen altar, you know, where the burnt offerings were sacrificed, they would finally get to Psalm 118 and the whole, the whole crowd would sing aloud with the temple choir, Psalm 18. The priest would, would take the picture and he would, he would march around very ceremoniously, march around the brazen altar. He would go to where a, a funnel had been um, attached to the altar for these sacrifices. And oil, you know, has sometimes is sacrificed before the Lord into the funnel, onto the altar. Smoke 
everywhere. This is huge. That one little thing of water, I promise you, ain't going to put out the brazen altar, so don't worry. And he would pour the water from the, the pool of Siloam into the funnel over the altar. And then as what happened on the altar happened with the, with the steam and the smoke, the people would shout three times, Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! It's amazing thing that was going on as they celebrated the wandering in the wilderness. God gave us water from a rock. We have just made a sacrifice commemorating that God is the one who has cared for His people and given drink to His people. So now you know why it's so important and so radical that Jesus went to the very place in the temple that the most people could hear him. And we read that on the last and greatest day of the festival, and that afternoon they're going to put their tents down and go home. This is the culmination. Every day they have remembered the water from the rock. We read in our text that on the last and greatest day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out in a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come, you ready for this? To me and drink. That's messianic. That's claiming to be the one. The one that would would give the, the water of salvation. The one that would give the waters of joy, of renewal forever. I mean, there's these prophecies and from Ezekiel, no, you know, in the, the last times of the Messiah that there would actually be symbolized this river that would flow out from the temple and would just water the nations because of the Messiah and His ability to give life. And this water symbolizes life. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the water from the rock. I am the true water that can meet the deepest thirsts in your life. I am the promised one who gives life. You know, you and I know, we just know it. And if we took a moment to think about it, if we opened our eyes to see it, we know that people are desperately thirsting for love. We're so desperate for love. So desperate for belonging. So desperate for purpose. So desperate for some kind of peace that makes sense of it. And it is sad sometimes to see just how desperate people's thirst for love can be and how we will drink from the worst springs and the weakest springs to meet that thirst. Everyone in Jerusalem that day, everyone sitting in this sanctuary this morning has that thirst in a very deep place. It's a part of who we are and what we need in how God has created us. And we live in a fallen world. And we must now find the Messiah. The Messiah must come to us and meet these deep thirsts. 
Everybody's trying to find something they can drink to satisfy their thirst. So Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus would broker reconnection with God like it was in that really lush, green, fertile, cool, wonderful place called the Garden of Eden with God himself. He would broker this reconnection and he would do it through the sacrifice, the self-sacrifice. He would be our high priest and our final lamb of God all at one time, the Messiah who would broker our forgiveness with God and our acceptance with God. And he would just open the floodgates of God's love into our lives. Drink. You're thirsty. Come to me. I'm finally here. This is a thirsty world when it comes to real love. And you know, as you and I, as we walk through that place of dryness with incredibly parched hearts, we always have, if we have the Messiah Jesus, we always have the springs of God's love and grace if we would turn to Him, if we would come to Him and drink. It is so good to know that the one who loves us, loves us always. It's so good to know that because this is the love of God, it is never insufficient. It is never a bartered love. It is never a negotiated love. It's never a transaction. It's just God's gift to you. And it never goes dry because it is a relationship with the almighty and infinite God. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel like you are exhausted in a desert and thirsty? Do you ever feel emotionally weak and spiritually dehydrated? Jesus says, on the last great day of the feast, come to me and drink. Drink of this living water and how do we drink how do we drink jesus says we drink by believing look at verse 37 if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me as the scripture says there will be rivers of living water drink him in turn away from other ineffective springs trust in him let him provide the love. Let Him provide the grace. Let Him provide for you in that internal kind of way that is actually right where you are in your personality, in your heart, in your like who you are. That's how intimate. That's where God wants to meet you and meet me. And that water is so good. And it is living water. It is so cool and fresh, and, it, and that water gives life. And there's love, and there's security, and there's energy from being filled. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, this is what He has died for you to be able to have. Drink and receive His love. Receive salvation in a personal, 
connection with God. And you know what? If you're a believer in Jesus, drink again. You're wandering through that desert. Why would we try every spring but Jesus? In my life, in many times, I'm sure, as well as yours, and, and even this week, in just thinking about this text, I thought to myself, oh yeah, Joseph, oh yeah. And it's like an aha moment, but it's kind of an oh yeah moment. When you hear Jesus' words, you say, oh yeah, that's where it is. And just to be able to turn in my own heart and say, Jesus, I want to drink. I want to come to you. I want to trust you. I want to trust you with this. I want to trust you with my heart. I want to trust you with with what needs to happen according to your great love. I want you to apply your love to my life. I love the hymn, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say. We sing that often here. And that wonderful verse, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give. The living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. One of the most fascinating verses in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. It says this, and it reflects back on the wanderings in the wilderness and the thirst of the people. And in the wilderness they ate that same spiritual food, meaning the manna, and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And even in Exodus 17, it was God the rescuer. It was a foretaste. It was a foreshadowing of the one who at a given moment, I'm talking about a second that ticked off a clock or a sundial. I guess sundials don't tick. And suddenly he was there. He stood up. And he said, here's the water is here. If any of you are thirsty, Come to me and drink. Believe in me. Don't trust in ineffective springs. Put your trust in me and I alone can satisfy your thirst. Remember, this is about how a drink of water becomes a river. It's that next little part about this, this river and the power of the river It's verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this, verse 39, about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus says that it is the Holy Spirit that will do this in our lives. The Holy Spirit is so wonderful. He applies Christ to our hearts. Do you know that without the second person of God, without Jesus and without the Holy Spirit, we kind of just have some God way up there in heaven, very distant and detached, who's holy. We know about God because God has 
given himself to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the father and the son so loved the world that he sent. He gave the Holy Spirit to us. And we experience God Almighty because of the second person of God, our Savior, and because of the third person of God given to us, meaning God really wants us to know Him. He really wants us to have that inward quenching, that, that inward blessing, that inward settling at any, over our lives in the big picture of salvation, but also at any given moment to come back to Him and drink. The Spirit, we read, He's a person, not an it. But the metaphor for the Spirit is He is, you know what it is, right? Poured out. You see, we're, we're kind of back to a, a, a water kind of, kind of metaphor here. He is poured out. And, and this is also, as Jesus pulls in, as, as uh, John John's Gospel pulls this in, this is also a part of the prophecy about the days of the Messiah. We're not necessarily in the church age. You'd call it that if you like. We're in the age of the Holy Spirit. We're in the age of the Spirit. We're in the last times between Jesus' crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension, and being seated at the right hand of God, and His eventual return. We're in the age of the Spirit where the Spirit has been poured out, And this is a wonderful time to be alive, even in a fallen world. And that's what Jesus is about to say when he gets to this part about rivers. This was a part of the prophecy. Do you remember as you kind of flip over to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2, the believers were tarrying in an upper room. They were waiting. It was was at the... A different feast of the Jews. Do you remember this? It was not at the last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. No, they were there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They they celebrated the barley harvest, the first harvest in, and the faithfulness of God, and the, the giving, you know, and bounty of God. And in Joel chapter 2, Verse 28, it says, in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And the Spirit of God, notice in our text, he's referring to the Spirit, but the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus had not yet been crucified and then raised from the dead and ascended, glorified, and seated at the right hand. It was after that that Jesus and the Father sent, poured out, gave us the Spirit to apply this grace, this love, this soul-quenching love to our hearts. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit was poured out on the believers. And not only... Did 3,000 people drink and live as they drank of Jesus? But a mighty river of gospel refreshment was established that day that continues on to this day. It is running right down the center aisle of this church as we are lifting Jesus, the promised one, 
who has come. Behold, Jesus said, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is from Mark's gospel. It is now. It was now in Acts chapter 2, and it is now at Highlands Presbyterian Church. One of the reasons that the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter is because he applies Christ to our life. He gives cool water to thirsty people who are panicking and downcast and so needy. The Spirit flows, the living water in us, and then, Jesus says, the Spirit overflows it so that it becomes a river flowing out of us And this dry, fallen world needs that river of grace. So needs that river of grace. You understand? The river of grace, the kingdom of God, the flow of the gospel, the redemptive history through his church does not happen in any way except through his people. And what a privilege it is. To be that river that this world needs. But to give a river, we must drink. Let me say that again. To give a river, we must drink. If you are thirsty, even if you are disappointed... Even if you are diminished, even if you are hurt, don't drink from the springs that won't satisfy. Don't trifle with weak springs. If you are angry, if you are bitter, don't take it out on people just to get rid of your frustration. That is no clean spring. There's no life in that. No refreshment. If you are sad or if you are scared, do not simply look inward to yourself and wait for such a time as, quote, something will happen that will make all the difference. If you look inward to yourself and wait, you're just going to get more depressed because you're not the Savior. And you don't give yourself the water. Realize that your longing, I'm talking about the longing in your heart, the thirst. You were made to long with those longings. It's not an accident that you're longing for love and peace and purpose. And grace, and dare I say, even joy. You were made for those longings, and no one thing, and no one can meet the thirst that you have for love and grace outside of the promised one, Jesus, who came to give us a drink that becomes, as he told the woman at the well in John 4, a spring of water 
welling up to eternal life and through us becomes a river of grace and truth that we get to give the world. The Jesus we need is the only true thirst quencher. The Jesus we need is the living water. Let's pray. Lord, would you reorient us? You're so gentle in the way you turn us away from weak and ineffective springs, and sometimes they're even bitter springs. Would you turn us to you? Would you help us acknowledge that we have this longing, these thirsts, and they're put there by you, and you intend on meeting them in Jesus? If you've never put your trust in Christ or what he has done, but you see now that there's no way in the world you can be good enough for a holy God, and he has come to you, he has been given, and he has done everything needed for you by dying in your place and taking God's wrath you on the cross so you don't have to take God's wrath. You get nothing but relationship. And you see that. And, and God's Spirit wants to apply Jesus to your life. And you pray with me, Lord, I see it. It's amazing. It's grace. And I want to turn from everything that I've called Christianity and everything I've called religion and every spring or creek that I have relied on to make my life okay. And I want to turn to you, Jesus. And thank you that even now you've forgiven me because of the cross. Even now you have given forth the Holy Spirit in my life. Even now you are applying the gospel, that good news, that beautiful grace to my heart. Lead me in your grace. Let me grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. Lead me in such a way that I not only would have my thirst quenched, on a continual basis, but that you would use me in other people's lives. Lord, there are many of us, we know you, and we've known you for years, and we we can tell people with assurance we are not trusting in our own works, we are trusting in you for our eternal life, and we thank you for that. But God, there we are drinking from polluted springs. There we are drinking from weak tributaries, trickles, creeks that cannot satisfy. And we know this. We even know it experientially because we've had to switch creeks so many times. Oh, Lord, in your mercy, Holy Spirit, would you lift up Jesus in our midst? Would you lift up Jesus in my heart? Could we hear the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and and drink and turn our hearts back to him. And Lord, let us drink of his love, our security and acceptance because of his grace, our now and our tomorrow and our future secure because of his sovereignty, all applied personally day by day. Lord, we repent of all the things that we drink and pray that you would take us back to the cool, clear headwaters out of the rock 
who is Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.